Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. Today, we're turning our attention to gold, that most emotive of investment topics, derided by some as a barbarous relic and fated by others as a vital defence against inflation and the ongoing debasement of currency. I'm joined to discuss this always fascinating subject by the fund manager, Charlie Morris, who in his day job after 15 years at HSBC, now runs multi-asset portfolios for the private investment group, Newscape Capital and finds time to produce a regular free monthly commentary on gold called Atlas Pulse, which is well followed by the cognoscenti in this field. After a wild ride that's seen gold rise from $400 an ounce at the start of the century to a peak of $1,900 in 2012, gold is now back trading in the 1250 to 1300 range. Is that good or bad value? How much gold should investors have in their portfolios? What's the best way to invest in gold? And where is the price headed next? These are all questions that we discuss in this podcast. But when we met, I started with a rather more fundamental question. What is gold and how should investors set about thinking about it? So gold, first and foremost, is, a, is, a, is an element which has extraordinary uh, physical properties. You know, it doesn't rust. It's very dense. It's quite rare. And, and it's, you know, it's, been in, it's, been, it's been associated with money for over 5,000 years. And through that time, it's, um, it's held its real value. And that means that it had purchasing power um, you know, before Christ in a similar, to a similar degree of what it has today. So for the very, very long term, you'd expect this thing to maintain its value. So that makes it very different from risky assets. For example, um, if, looking at equities, you'd expect them to return 6.5% a year over and above the rate of inflation. With bonds, it's less than that, but it's you know, depending on the type of bond, but it's still a rate above the rate of inflation. With gold, we would expect it to, re to return the rate of inflation and no more. And so if you model that idea, and, um, which you can do, and, and put gold into the framework of the bond market, you can say, well, what kind of bond um, is gold? Well, the first instance, it's zero coupon because it doesn't pay any income. The second thing is that it's inflation linked, as we've already described. Then we also know it's got no credit risk because it's, uh, it doesn't rust, and it doesn't corrode. Um, and then finally, it must have been issued by someone who issued that bond, uh, but it was issued by God. So you put that simple idea together, and that's a framework which I've developed to model the price of gold. I think that's a very useful way to think about it. Um, what, it what is your model now telling you about where gold is then? At today's price is about $1,260 an ounce. Uh, what, what is the model telling you at the moment? Well, for the first time really since the credit crisis, um, the gold price is now fair value. So there's a couple of, let me, let me talk about that a bit more. Going into the credit crisis from the year 2000 up until 2008, gold was always undervalued. It was always below where it should have been. I, I estimate that um, you know, gold in the year 2000 should have been $400 an ounce on its fair value by looking at the bond market, but actually it was around 255 at the low. So actually gold was uh, very, very cheap at that time and therefore a better investment than it should have been. Um, Going to the credit crisis, gold went to, to, to 800 corrected, then up to 1,000 and beyond. Once it passed 1,000, really, gold was at a premium. And it's no great surprise that gold traded above fair value because um, there was fear in the air. People were worried about the financial system after the banks had collapsed. And so people were quite um, rationally prepared to pay more um, for this asset. In 2011, when gold peaked at 1,900, according to my models, it should never have really got much above 1,400. And so that premium got pretty big uh, right at the very, very end of the market. Since then, um, the gold price has retreated. 
um, obviously there was the taper tantrum in 2013, which demonstrates the sensitivity to the bond market, and also um, the bear market continued into the um, the end of 2015. This year we've had a little bit of a rally, not that much of one, around 20% up to, to, to 12.50, um, but that's bang in line where gold should be on a long-term historic um, bond market valuation. So just to pick up on one point there, um... While, as you say, gold has the characteristics of preserving its real value over a longish period of time, obviously within that longer cycle, there are sometimes quite dramatic shorter term cycles, which is influenced by, as you say, emotion, fear, uh, and also the role of speculators. What, what, what is the role of speculation in the, in the gold market? I, I, broadly speaking, I put um, gold investors into four categories. And the first one is a physical investor. And they buy a piece of metal and they probably never sell it. So you can you can assume that anyone who buys physical metal is pretty committed in the terms of their time horizon of how long they hold it. Um, then you've got the ECF investor, which is relatively committed. And it's hard to say exactly, but I would estimate that they're probably their intention is to hold for a year or lo- longer. Then you've got the futures traders. And, uh, and, and these guys really have a much lower attention span. But on the long side, they're better on the short side. On the long side, I would assume that they've got a um, a time horizon of three months to a year, and on the short side, probably um, days to weeks. And so you can add all these two, to the, the, these four groups together. I don't think that the the um, the long term physical buyers are as important in in analysing the gold gold price as the financial buyers, which are the ETFs and the and, and, and the futures. And and certainly that's what my work demonstrates. I mean, there's an eighty percent correlation between the flows into financial gold and the gold price itself. Right. So the so these are people who actually aren't buying the metal, but they're buying a, a security that's linked to the metal in Absolutely. most cases. And what is uh, what has been happening on that side of the market in in recent years? In other words, uh, what influence has that had? How has the number of futures contracts, etc., uh, varied over the last say ten years? And what influence does that have on your assessment of where the value is at any one time? In the first instance, I think the gold ETF was uh, created in two thousand three in Australia, if I'm not mistaken. So we would have had less ability to ascend gold to a premium um, in recent years, and it wasn't so easy for the public to get access to it. So I do think the ETF undoubtedly has had a positive impact on price. Um, if nothing else, it sucked up nearly half a year's production at its peak when it was 84 million ounces in, in, in 2011. Um, that's growing again, so that's a positive force for the gold market. The futures market in gold is no different from the futures market in pretty much anything else. It has grown massively in the last 20 years. Um, and grown even even more since um, 2008. So we've seen this very, very large representation of all commodities and currencies uh, and their volumes, which has increased in, in, in financial instruments. And so um, I wouldn't single out gold against others, um, which I think is quite important to point, point to make, because I think a lot of these conspiracy theorists in the gold market say, oh, well, the futures market's gone nuts. Well, it's gone nuts in every single asset class. Right, and that's another key point that you make, that one of the things you should do for thinking about gold, uh, gold is, despite its uh, unique qualities, is also in competition with other uh, commodities, particularly metals and so on. Uh, and how do you go about analysing and comparing those two? Do you use the same bond-type model for that? Um, I have a regime model which looks at gold as whether it's in a um, essentially a bull, bear, or neutral environment. And uh, those are the three main considerations. There's a bit more to it than that, looking at extreme um, overboughtness and extreme oversoldness. But those have never really come up very. Often. Those have really come up very often. So sticking with the main three of bull, bear, um, and neutral, 
it's in, gold's in a bull market about 40% of the time over the long term. And it's in a bear market about 40% of the time over the long term, leaving a neutral gap in the, in the 20% region. I think gold at the moment is neutral. And, and the reason for that is I've got three tests for the gold price. The first is, is money easy? Yeah, and there's ways you can find this, but the answer, we don't need to go into detail, here we are in 2016, of course money is easy, it's never been easier. So that's, that test is passed. Is the long-term gold trend, uh, gold price trend, outperforming in a, in a basket of global currencies? And then the answer to that second test is, of course, yes. Um, sterling is particularly powerful, it's picking up again in euros and, and, and yen as we speak. The only pressure on the gold price really is felt in um, areas like the Russian ruble, surprisingly, and, um, and also perhaps the US dollar and its friends. So that test is still positive. So the third That's two test, out of three, so. That's two out of three, which gets you to a neutral environment. Now, the third test that would take gold to a bullish environment would be, is it beating the S&P 500? And quite frankly, um, it, you know, right now it isn't. The S&P has been you know, soaring from 666 in 2009 um, all the way up to the, to the present levels of 2150-ish. And, um, and that trend is very strong. Now, it could be that a bear market in equities begins tomorrow morning. Who knows? It could come on the election. But I'm just telling you that the prevailing winds are that the gold price is not as strong as the stock market. So therefore, that third test fails. Now, obviously, any, any trend following test is a little bit late uh, to get to the party. But, you know, you reduce a hell of a lot of risk in your, um, in, in, in your um, trade if you respect the trend. Just one point there, I, I might also pick up as we go along, which is you correctly pointed out that uh, gold has, has risen quite sharply in uh, sterling terms this year. And the strength and the feature of gold that, it, that makes it valuable to investors is also applies when currencies are weak or strong, does it not? Because it keeps its value in all currencies or should do over most periods of time. Is that right? So when a currency is devalued, you would expect the... Uh, the price of gold in that currency to maintain its uh, to maintain its level. Absolutely, and can we go back to the to the gold bond model? Because I think to answer that, we want to go back to that that scenario. And um, you know, why does the bond model work? Um, well, on the top top of the equation, very simply, you've got long term inflation expectations, which you could swap. You could cross that. I think you don't like that phrase, long term inflation expectations. You could just say, what do you think your currency is going to be worth in the future? Yeah, right. it's the same statement. And on the bottom, you've got bond yields. So how easy or hard is the central bank? Yeah, and, and, and basically gold loves falling interest rates. Absolutely loves them. It's very simple. It's very logical. If, you, you know, if you're making 10% in the bank, um, then actually that's pretty attractive. If you're making nothing in the bank, then you may as well own some gold. Turn that turn that around and say, okay, you're a multimillionaire. You've got a million pound painting on the wall. When interest rates are zero, it costs you nothing to own that painting. When interest rates are 10%, it costs you 100 grand a year to own that painting. So do you actually want that? So, of course, that painting would be worth less when interest rates were higher. So I think there's a simple argument there as to why the discount rate of you know, the interest rate um, really does move the gold price. But then the other side on the numerator, we talked about you know, long-term inflation expectations or the future, the future purchasing power of the currency, which is, amounts to the same thing. And frankly, when you're talking about emerging market currencies, you're dealing with long-term inflation expectations, you know, 3 to 8% would be a typical range. Whereas in developed market currencies, you're dealing with you know, one to four percent. So you do get these very different regimes. Um, and, and over the long term, of course, emerging market currencies have underperformed developed market currencies, which is why uh, gold is you know so popular in those countries or has been historically in places like India. So the weaker the currency or, or the higher the expected inflation, uh, the more popular gold is going to be. Absolutely. 
So in today's environment, though, we are, uh, as you said, in a very special environment where uh, the yields on most government bonds or developed market government bonds uh, up to uh, 10, 15 years or so uh, are basically zero or even negative in some cases. Um, and real yields, that is, after taking account of inflation, are actually negative. So what you're saying is that is quite that is a positive uh, background for gold, but that could change if inflation expectations start to rise. And how would it change? Well, it, well, it has been a positive environment because real yields, um, and to reiterate that, that's the interest rate less the rate of inflation, so what you actually get after your money has been eroded. Um, you know, that, that was four, four and a half in, in America in, in 15 years ago. And that was a hell of a good deal. So you can lie in an arm, you sit in an armchair earning four and a half cent real a year. This doesn't come around very often in history, uh, but that was possible fifteen years ago. Hence, gold was cheap. Now that that same um, um, real interest rate has come down to zero, and in some cases negative. In the UK, long term expectations are minus two. This is an extremely low number. So gold's loved the journey from from plus you know um, mid single digit to zero to, to slightly negative. To be bullish on gold from here, you have to assume that those that, that journey will continue. So we're going from real rate, you know, as I said, zero slash minus one, minus two, down to minus five, six, seven, eight. That's a scenario that's really bullish for gold from here. Now, is that possible? Well, yes, it is possible, because the way that would happen would be that um, central banks continue to manipulate money and keep bond yields very low, yet inflation expectations start to pick up in a sizable way. Now, if Britain did it alone, that wouldn't be great because you wouldn't be able to go. No one could afford to go on holiday because the pound really wouldn't be worth 10p. But if everyone did it, you know, who knows? Maybe it would work. Maybe the world could reflate. But those holding gold will do well. So people often say gold is a good thing to own when inflation is high or rising. But um, it's a form of protection, if you like, against insurance against inflation. But that isn't always true, is it? I mean, that that depends on, on on what your fair value is. It depends on the other side of the equation, and it depends on the fair value. Yeah. Right. So if um, if interest rate if, if inflation expectations in Britain, which today are, are about three percent um, on the ten year, um, rushed off to eight, and so the pound became more like the Brazilian real, um, which is quite possible. I'm not forecasting it, but it's quite possible. If that scenario happened. If interest rates also went up to eight, nine, ten percent to 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 defend it, then actually gold and sterling wouldn't do as well as you'd expect because that increase in interest rate would would protect the pound. Right. So let me try and put you on on the spot here. Then you say that uh, gold is at fair value. Is that a reason why anybody should buy it at this point? Well, gold's at fair value um, in dollar terms. Now we can we can have to adjust that thinking. In other countries, um, which I think is another point, but but we won't go there today. But, it, but let's say it's approximately fair value in most places, assuming the currency is more or less correctly valued against the dollar. Um, on that basis, you know, you'd expect gold to perform well when things go wrong, because when things go wrong, um, bond yields tend to collapse. So you know, a lot of investors panic in the bonds, central banks cut rates, and all that sort of thing. Difficult to see how you could do that today, given they've done as much as you could ever dream for. But big picture, there will still be some element of flight quality into, into gold. Now, if gold's at a premium, then it's not going to do so well in a downturn with if it's at a discount. So actually, we were offered a gift in 2000. We were offered gold 30% below fair value when the stock market was about to halve. Yeah? 
I mean, that really was a gift. Um, in 2008, we were offered it at about a 20% discount, possibly, not too bad. Uh, maybe it was a 15, if I'm a figure in my head. And um, in 2011, when people were panicking into gold, they were paying a 40% premium for protection. So guess what? It didn't work. And so the price collapsed from $1,900 all the way down to 1050 Right here, right now, um, gold is fair value. So you'd expect it to work reasonably well, not massively well, in the event of a short-term correction or crisis. Okay, so another part of that question is, uh, do you expect central banks to raise interest rates sufficiently to counter the financial repression effects, in other words, of keeping uh, uh, keeping interest rates below the expected rate of inflation? I'm, I'm guessing your answer is no. Well, I think in the US, it looks like they want to. I mean, one's got to remember 1937, uh, one hike in the S&P halved. But there again, it had gone down by 90% from 1929 to 1932. Then I think it rallied three or fourfold. And, and so you put these things into perspective, well, this time of very high volatility. So um, what's 40% between 40, 50% correction between friends? And then it went straight up again. So um, there is that fear. So any rate hikes are going to happen very slowly. But let's look at what's happened um, in this low rate environment in the last few years. It's literally caused currency weakness in every, at every single turn. So... The Japanese stimulated in a big way in 2012. The yen fell 40%. The Nikkei went soaring. Um, in 2014, um, the Euro, you know, the Eurozone, they started their quantitative easing. That caused a massive correction from 140 to 110 um, in the Euro. And here we are. Britain's supposed to be on the right side of the financial crisis. Um, years on, a sort of recovery country rather than a basket case. Um, and we've got QE post-Brexit. And that, what's it done? It's called sterling to absolutely tank. So I think that the answer to that question, I think people are starting to realise this, that actually uh, printing money, unsurprisingly, causes currency weakness. And so at some point, we've got to recognise that it's not working, it's not making the country richer, and it's not really creating, you know, putting pounds into people's pockets. So what's the point? Um, yes, you get a short-term stimulus, and we just stand, you know, we're very close to Piccadilly right now. If you try and walk around Piccadilly at this time of year with a pound at, um, at 110 to the euro, I mean, you know, you can't, you can't move trampled on the foot for all the tourists. <laughs> so, um, you know, it is working in some ways, but I do think we're looking at political change. I do think that the bull market in, in risk assets is tired, and therefore, when it goes, um, the central bankers will be blamed and they said you got it wrong. It hasn't worked. It was a brilliant idea at the beginning to save the banks. It's a bad idea now, and the political change will bring a new round of, of, of stimulus, and that stimulus won't be monetary; it'll be fiscal. So we've already had the sign-off for, for Heathrow Third Runway today, so lots more of that to follow. Right. And so um, that implies to me that you think we uh, are at some sort of turning point in, in the bond market in terms of yields and so on. Is that a correct assumption? Yes, I think the, the bond market is naturally exhausted. I don't think it wants to, to do any more. I mean, Japan, you know, when the policy is we keep a 10-year at zero, they can do that because you know, the, the, the central bank can, can print all the money in the world. And so they can do that. But at what cost? Uh, the cost is to the pension funds and, and, and other, um, there are other casualties out there. We're not quite aware of what they will be. I mean, certainly there's bad lending, there's businesses, unproductive businesses that, that exist that shouldn't. There's all these sorts of long-term problems that are, that, that are coming from this um, era of, of, of easy money. It will become clear afterwards who 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 wasn't wearing shorts, as we know. But um, but of course, it's not so clear today. 
But I do think that the you know looking at a natural a natural freely traded bond in a non QE environment, the 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 yield wants to go up, and we're seeing that in the states right now. So we haven't yet talked about what the best way to own gold is, and you're in you're you're obviously a specialist in gold, but you also run asset allocation and have done for many many years for uh, private clients and, and others. Um, so what do you recommend to people uh, about how they should own gold and, and what kind of uh, proportions of their, of their portfolio should they have within, within ranges, depending on the valuation, obviously? Um, well, starting with how to buy gold, I think that's uh, always a good question. There, there are three techniques the general public should probably consider. And um, uh, we'll, leave, we'll, leave, we'll leave financial tricks out of it. So we won't, we'll, we'll leave futures out of it and, and derivative instruments and just stick with the real stuff. Now, you can either um, go and buy a, a kilo bar at Sharps Bixley or somewhere like that and pay a small spread, like a 1% spread. And, and that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. You can leave it in a vault um, on their premises or you can take it at home and hide it in the garden. It's up to you. But that's a 1% spread um, or so, and which isn't too bad. The problem that's is that if gold doubles and you want to sell it, then you're liable to capital gains tax in Britain. Um, this is to a British person, obviously. If you want to avoid capital gains tax, then you pay a 6% spread and you buy Britannias or sovereigns, which are issued by the Royal Mint. And don't buy them from the Royal Mint, whatever you do, buy them from somewhere like a reputable gold dealer where you don't pay the premium. And um, sorry, you don't pay the, um, the retail premium. Um, and and these, these coins will cost you more, so you'll pay 106 for 100 of gold. Um, but they're currently free of capital gains tax. Now, the problem with that is that one day that could change. You know, you're only one chance for a way. For, I mean, if gold was worth a million dollars an ounce, they, they, might, just change, they might just change the rules. So they would so, change the rules. So, yeah. so, so maybe that, that benefit is pointless. Um, but that's up to you. That, that's your decision. Do you want to have a you know, trade, trade the physical um, bar cheaply, or do you want to buy a sovereign at a, at a premium because of a tax benefit? And then there's a third way, which I do as a portfolio manager, which is to use an exchange-traded fund. And um, I believe that they're true and fair. I mean, when I worked at HSBC, I went to visit the gold vaults where GLD's gold was. At the time, it was um, over $50 billion worth of gold standing in front of me. I saw it. Um, and you could tell it was theirs because it had a sticker on it saying, I'm just joking, it didn't really, any bar was accounted for. Uh, but, but, um, so, so I believe in the system. I think it's a brilliant financial innovation and I think it's true and fair. So just because that you're, with an ETF, you're, you're buying what is effectively like a share, it's a security, yeah. which is backed by an equivalent or, or virtually equivalent um, amount of gold, Absolutely. which can be in physical form. Right? Absolutely. And of course, the, the alternative to that is you can go to one of these um, these, these websites. Um, what, what, do you, what do you call them? Um, bullion Vault and money, uh, bullion, yeah, gold money. Sort of specialist gold sites. Yeah. yeah, the specialist gold sites. Make sure you get a good one that's regulated. Um, but, but you can buy and sell online and it sits in their vault. I think it's important to have the gold in someone else's vault. Um, I don't think having it in the garden is a particularly good idea. You haven't mentioned um, gold equities at this point. Um, do you think they're an effective way for people? To, obviously, they're like if you buy a gold equity, it magnifies the effect up or down of the movements of the gold price. Um, is that a sensible way to, to for people to think about investing in gold? Or not? Um, can we talk about asset quality? And I'll answer that. Okay. Through through the through the eyes of asset quality, let's let's just start. What's the highest quality bond in the world? Is you know most people would say is a U.S. Treasury. Um, the highest quality equity in the world is is a big blue chip with a with a big franchise like a 
Nestle or something. Nestle or Johnson and Johnson, something like that. And and the best commodity in the world is gold, right? So this that, that states that's the good stuff. Then you've got the next tier down in equities. We've got the normal companies, which are susceptible to the cycle, like um, BP and Rio Tinto and utilities. Uh, and and in, in bonds, we've got corporate bonds or junk bonds. And then in in in, um, in, in commodities, we've got things like oil and copper. And then we go to low quality. And low quality in the stock market is, you know, speculative, very cyclical. Liquidity comes and goes, small caps. In bond market is Venezuelan debt and, you know, junk, you know, bankruptcy situations. And in commodities, it's natural gas and um, weird and wonderful things that which have no liquidity. Within that framework, if you buy a gold bar, you're buying the highest quality commodity. The volatility is 18% historically on average, which is not dissimilar to a major stock market index. It's about a bit like the FTSE, but slightly higher than the FTSE, um, and about three points higher than the S&P 500, but lower than an emerging market. Um, silver's about 28, um, copper's in the 30s, oil's in the 30s, and, and natural gas in the 50s. Okay, So you can kind of look at price volatility and equate it to asset quality. And gold mining stocks are low quality assets. They're low quality equities. If you choose one on its own, it's, it's very low quality. If you buy all of them and diversify, then it's probably a bit better. But it's, we're still dealing with a sort of low to medium, medium end of the stock market with massive volatility. So the whole point of what we said about gold is this very reliable journey and it's steady and it's 0% real return. Well, that's fine, but um, you know, gold stocks have this habit of, of doubling and halving. Actually, it's not even doubling and halving. It's, it's sort of 10 times and then minus 90%. And it happens all the time. It's a completely different journey. And I think it's important that people understand what they're doing when they're buying gold mining stocks. They say, yes, I like it. They are speculating. They say, I like the idea of gold. I think it's going up. I want to make tons more. So you can either take a leverage bet on gold or you can buy gold mining shares. Actually, at the moment, gold mining shares are not that stupid because they're pretty well priced in the big scheme of things, despite the rally this year. Um, they've basically been trading at a premium for years and years and years. In fact, gold mining stocks peaked relative to gold in November two, 2003, so, right. so, which is when the ETF was born. So as soon as investors had an alternative way of getting access to gold, the gold, the gold mining share premium started to diminish. And I think that, that, that now... Um, the value is fine. It, it basically, what I'm saying is, if the gold price goes up, the mining shares will do fine. Um, we don't expect the two to disconnect um, at current valuations. So let's just briefly then um, turn from gold as as a, as a subset of a portfolio to just your general thoughts about asset allocation in the current climate, where, as you say, the bond market may be about to turn in one of the two places. Um, there's a lot of um, sort of doom and doom around about the uh, lack of economic growth and so on. Uh, and there's a lot of currency uh, volatility, uh, as, as, as you described, going from one country to the next, devaluing and, and sort of currency wars, if you like, a shorthand for that. So what's your feeling about uh, where we are in the market cycle as far as the main asset classes are concerned, that's equities, bonds, uh, and other stuff, including gold? Well, the, the, the first place to, to start is, is bonds, where... Strategically, I think um, the correct allocation to bond market is is pretty much zero. I, I don't see any value. I mean, you, you might want to. I do own some one year gilts. That's yeah. that's just instead of cash. I think they're better than cash, not for the yield, just because as a fund manager, you have to you have to you have to, you have a you have a cap on your your cash limit, and so there's a use to these short term these 
uh, short-term faith, which, which is which is something you have to do. But I've seen no, no problem with that. But I think in in terms of normal bonds, um, I don't see any return either. Um, and and I think inflation is starting to pick up. So bonds are the last place to be. These but, are conventional bonds, you conventional gilts and gambit bonds you're talking about, or does that include index linked? Where you're going to come um, on to? We can index link really are. In many ways, are not bonds. <laughs> yes, yeah, but yeah, okay. Let, let's, but let's come back to that. Okay, let's put that one side for a moment. Yeah. So conventional bonds, yeah. to be clear, um, they obviously have very little. Um, to, 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 there's no return to be had, so they're yeah. why own them. So I don't see any point in owning those apart from just to park your cash in the short term. Um, equity, global equities are a different beast. You know, by my calculations, the global stock market is fair value, right? which I think surprises people. They've got assumed as a bubble. Now, that's a game of two halves, because on the one side, you've got American equities, and on the other side, you've got the rest of the world's equities. And American equities, a bubble is too strong a phrase. I think, you know, perhaps since 2000 was three standard deviations bubble, and 2007 was two, this one's one. So so I think it's, uh, yes, it's on the wrong side of cheap, but, but I don't think a bubble is a fair description. But it's certainly not a safe haven. So I think that U.S. equities are up with the Fed's. They've been carried by a you know, dollar, the strong American equities and a strong dollar have worked together. They've massively outperformed global equities. I mean, so much so, um, you wouldn't expect that to be possible to maybe maintain over the long term. It's my belief that if you take two um, civilized countries um, with a good rule of law, their long term total returns of their equities should be approximately the same. And um, you know, the idea that America are greater business and everyone else is terrible, I, I don't buy that at all. Of course, they've also bought the rest of the world's stocks. They've done a lot of takeovers over the years, which is value destructive for the acquirer. So there are lots of reasons, uh, and they've been buying back shares aggressively, and there are lots of things I don't like about American equities at the moment. But looking at the rest of the world, I don't see a bubble. I see, um, you know, the FTSE at seven thousand is, is where it was um, sixteen years ago. The yields fall. Yes, there's pressures pressures on. Um, or earnings in the short term, but it all comes back to the same thing, lack of productivity and so on. I think I think the FTSE is reasonably undemanding. Um, not saying it's a safe haven. Europe is undemanding. Japan's undemanding. Emerging markets are uh, perfectly fine. So these are all places where long term you'd expect um, a decent outcome. In the short term is another another question entirely. But um, so in a nutshell, um, America I see on the wrong side of, of, of fair value, and the rest of the world I see fairly valued or better. Um, in a nutshell. So that's equities and bonds cover. And then finally, commodities. Now, I told you that gold is the um, is trading at fair value as a commodity. That's fine. But the rest of the commodities are cheap relative to gold. So actually, if you're really looking for something that's um, that, that, that's on the side of value, um, look to the likes of food, you know, the grains, to, to soft commodities, to metal prices, and basically anything other than gold in the commodity market is, is a and palladium, those are the two ones which are richly priced. Everything else is, is cheap. Palladium, for example, has never been, sorry, platinum, I beg your pardon, has never been so cheap relative to gold in measured history um, right now. Oil at 27 was the same, okay, it's now 50, but it's still half price relative to gold. And um, the other area of value, as I've already mentioned, the food prices. So um, where's the safe haven? Where's the long-term return? I think commodities ex-gold is an interesting place to be. Emerging markets in Europe and Japan, really. And then you, there, there are other questions like, do we hedge the currency and so on? We, we, we can get to that, but maybe this interview is more gold-centric. So worry about <laughs> all that stuff. Okay, so in that, again, in that context, then, um, 
a number of uh, there's a number of hedge funds, for example, out there who who basically are predicting some kind of terrible crisis going to hit the world, uh, and and they argue that that would be very good for gold amongst other things. Um, you don't buy that argument. No, I do. I think that the crisis would come at any time, but I try to be pragmatic and try and try and you know read the data. The narrative terrifies me. If I sit here and have a chat um, with you or any other intellectual great company. Then you know, no doubt we could talk ourselves down at the end of the world. But you know, since two thousand and nine, it's been wrong. The S and P's up, you know, three or four times, three and a half times, and so many. There've been so many opportunities to carry on with life. One of the things I'm reminded, I have to always remind myself, is that you know, one doesn't get up in the morning and and just jump out of the window because it's terrible. They get up in the morning, they go to work and feed their family, and that's the natural motivation of a human being. If if you if you had a meteorite hit the Amazon jungle. There's some destruction in the short term, but ten years later, five years later, you won't even notice it. You won't even find evidence of it because there'll be new species. Maybe a few species went, or a few new ones came. Financial markets are like that, so I think there's been a lot of reparation over the last. Um, I don't mean reparation; I mean repair. Don't I? They're not the same thing. Um, since 2000, there's been a huge amount of repair um, in the financial system. And there's been damage in the government side of it, but the private balance sheets have, have improved immeasurably. And I think that you know a lot of corporates are in are in reasonable shape on the balance sheet as well, and notwithstanding as Americans that have been buying back their stocks. So you know, in aggregate, there have been winners and losers as always. The loser has been the government. The winner has been the people so far, or most people, particularly the rich. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, 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 you know, unemployment is low. Yeah, it's a simple measure of that. We preserve some jobs, basically, uh, maybe with some other negative longer term consequences yes. that we may yet be about to see. Um, I can't let this just uh, interview close without asking you quickly about two other things. Number one is Brexit. As you say, people go out of every morning and, and try to do the best of their families. Uh, is the UK going to be able to do that as far as stepping out of the uh, European Union? Well, it's a very easy question to answer, having just seen the news about Canada and Belgium, yeah. isn't it? I mean, <laughs> you, I, mean I, I made this point in, in an article about a year ago when I wrote, when I wrote in Money Week about how the EU had, had, had failed to establish trade deals with pretty much everyone. Everybody, yeah. And, and it, when you've got 28 people around the table trying to agree on what flavor flavors we should have on top of the pizza, it, you know, it, it's, a, it's a difficult conversation. It doesn't really work. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Europe. I love Europe and I love everything about it. I love the people and the culture. And I consider myself to be a European in so many ways. But I don't like the politics. I don't like this um, unelected body, which is um, overly bureaucratic and, and ineffective. And we saw it in the in the war um, in Kosovo. And they're now talking about a European army. Can you imagine that with these twenty eight um, generals sitting around the table trying to decide which what topping to have on their pizza? I don't think that they'd be a very effective anti-Putin machine. Um, then, then there's there's other things like the euro itself. Now, I love the idea of a cooperative council that, that that makes all of Europe live in peace and like each other and help grease the oils of trade and. Um, you know, set some standards. I have no issue with all that stuff. And I quite like the idea of someone, a central body, um, funding roads in Greece and Spain and these things. I, I, that, that's all good stuff. Go. That's all good stuff. But but it's this 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 Euro project and this attempt to, to, to bring about a political union. And the Euro, of course, um, ha, has caused massive factions in Europe. And if there was a long-term commitment by the Germans to Europe, you'd expect them to move their productive capacity south. 
you'd have expected all these Mittelstaats who have you know, turned up in Spain and Italy and so on, but they haven't. And of course they can, because they did in East Germany between 1995 and 2000 and whatever it was. So um, yeah, the Germans know how to share the love, but they choose not to on this occasion. And I was reminded that you know Germany is surrounded by, I think it's eight or nine countries, something like that, and um, which makes them a very, very powerful place to, to do business in peacetime with all those trading partners. But it also makes them paranoid in war. And it kind of shapes the, the German psyche. And, um, and it's a shame that this project has to go so far. And particularly when we hear about the euro, you know, obviously the interest rate in Greece should have been minus 25% three years ago. Nowadays, it should be about minus 10. And in Germany, it probably should be plus six. And actually, if you take the average of the eurozone, it's now about right. So we're at this moment in the cycle where the stopped clock is telling the right time. <laughs> and as it continues, we'll start to see higher inflation in Germany, I would expect, because monetary policy is too loose. Of course, they brought in these extra workers that will crush that for a little while. Um, so it's a funny old game of cat and mouse, and I just don't see it succeeding. And um, what, what's our friend called? Professor um, Otmar Issin. Yes. Isin. He came up with some quite interesting actually, comments the other day. He spoke at a Halkin lunch once, and uh, and uh, it, 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 you know what he says is absolutely right. You know, he built this thing on firm rules, these sort of tough Bundesbank thinking, and and something else has happened. They haven't been adhered to, and, and almost and, from the beginning, haven't been adhered to. Haven't been adhered to from the beginning, as you as you say, and of course, you know, pre eight um, interest rates in Europe in should have should have been much higher. I mean, in Ireland, they should have been about twelve percent in two thousand and two or three, and they were three. And then you wonder why you've got this property boom and bust, which then destroys the banks. So there's the unintended consequences at every stage. And these unintended consequences continue. We don't quite know who the victim is next time. Um, we know the pensions, that one's becoming quite obvious. But there are other things, and it's less obvious what they'll be. Um, but I know how to destroy the euro without fuss. Tell me. It's very easy. All you do is line up European countries by Taylor rule. And so um, you say, Germany on the left with your 6% um, interest rate, implied interest rate, Greece on the right with your minus 10, and, and Germany leaves first, and you go down the line that way. And <laughs> if you go down the line that way, it's very easy, because the Deutschmark becomes worth 140 overnight from, from one, let's say, and um, the euro just keeps devaluing as the good ones leave. And before you know it, uh, there's no debt crisis, because um, all the debt's been all the debt's been in, the destroyed. Right, in the right hands at the right price. <laughs> so it could work. Could work. Last question then, uh, we, we, we know your special interest in gold. Um, tell us also about Bitcoin, which I know is another, is another uh, interest of yours. Uh, you actually think Bitcoin has a future as a, uh, as a currency or as a, as a kind of money? As an asset. Um, I, don't like the, I don't like to call it a currency because I think it immediately confuses people. So immediately people can compare it to a euro or to a yen. When actually if you call it an asset, then people compare it to a shares in Facebook or a bar of gold, which I think is a better right. a, a better comparison. So people um, do try to use it as a kind of means of exchange and so on, but do you think yeah. that's not really what it's what well, it's about? I can come with a you know, basket full of chickens and swap it for something else. You know, a, 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 raw ch- a, a live chicken for a prep chicken sandwich. I'm sure someone would do a swap. But, <laughs> but that's not really the point here. The fact that it's got um, modern electronic features doesn't make it money. Money is something that is issued by central banks. I mean, let's, let's hang on that for a second, because when an archaeologist goes to some ancient place and dig a hole and they find a load of coins, 
And so the, the assumption is that in the old days, people used coins, and that was a system of money. But as um, Felix Martin wrote in his book on money, um, the, the, the archaeologists never dug up the yield curve. Right. And of course, there was a big system of credit on top of those coins, which, which yes. didn't survive. Um, for that, you need record keeping. So I believe that that is that it's simplistic to think of money in terms of beans. And so in that case, well, what, just what, it, what, is, what is the attractions of Bitcoin then? I mean, first of all, you have to assume that the, that it sort of works technically or mechanically or whatever it does work, but also that you actually think it's got uh, some distinctive characteristics that make it valuable to people. Well, the, the, the attraction is that it's not money, it's an asset. And so when we talk about bonds, equities and commodities, these are assets. We're not talking about investing in the yen. We're not talking about investing in dollars. We're talking about assets. And um, so that's what you want to own. Um, the case of Bitcoin, on the supply side, is a bit like gold. It was designed around the idea of gold. And right now, the inflation is 4% and falling, and it will end up at zero. And that's in the code. But there's a limited supply. You've got scarcity. There's a finite There's a finite there's amount. A finite. So that's the first bit. You've got to get your head around the idea that you can't photocopy a Bitcoin and have two Bitcoins. Once you've got your head around that, and the blockchain technology is marvelous, and everyone's jumping on it, um, then, then, then you'll, you will get around that, that, that point. Um, and I think that's why people were, uh, you know, dismissive in the early days because they assumed that you could just you know, cut and paste some more bitcoins. You yeah. can't. Just take my word for it. It's finite. Okay. Yeah. The second point is that on the demand side, you've got something that looks more like a social media stock. So the more and more people that use it, the more the network grows, um, and the network is growing quite rapidly. And my, my fair value for well, bitcoins currently six hundred and fifty dollars, and my fair value is um, in, in, in the high in, around eighteen hundred. Looking oh. at the similar valuation techniques I used on gold, yeah, so it's there, significantly at a discount. To yes, and it's growing, so I think that that could be you know multiples ahead if this network really takes off. Now there's a big problem at the moment, and there's a thing called the block size debate. And basically, each block every ten minutes, the Bitcoin network is reconciled. Let's just leave it at that. And um, and the maximum size of this experimental asset, this experimental quote unquote is one megabyte, and every block is approximately a megabyte, just under. And so the, the, the network can't really explode in size until that problem is solved. And there's lots of people working on it and arguments in the community about how to do it safely and all this stuff. But, but you can buy, bet your bottom dollar there will be a solution. And when, it, when that comes, then the, 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 the network will be open to, to basically infinite growth. And that's the point at which I think the price will move very, very quickly. But it could happen so quickly on the announcement that you need to be there now. You don't want to hang around for the announcement, whatever you do. But it is speculative. And going back to my asset quality thing earlier, you know, Bitcoin's had an average volatility of 110%. When I talk about natural gas, I think 50. It's pretty high. Yeah. It is pretty high. <laughs> but that's going back to the beginning. Yes. Actually, over the last two years, um, it's been much lower. The average has been closer to 30. And right now, it's at about 20. So actually, Bitcoin is growing up. It's becoming more normal. Um, the entropy of the network, in other words, the, 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 the more touch points, the more people that use it, um, it's growing very rapidly. Uh, when there's a, there was an exchange failure the other day in Hong Kong, Bitfinex, and, and the, the network picked itself up and carried on. Bear in mind, the network, Bitcoin itself has never been hacked. It's, 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 um, it's you know, services that connect to it. And there's been scandals and stuff. And there are, you know, there are four actors in the space. There are the techies, who just love this whole idea of cryptography and what you can do with computers. And they see they've got a great vision of how this is really going to be the next generation of computing um, or application for computing and, and break forward um, for, for productivity of mankind. So there, there is that vision. 
There's the libertarian who just wants to get away from the government and you know hide in the garden. There's the speculator, which is someone like me, who just sees it as something that hopefully will go up a lot over um, the coming years. And then there's the sort of naughty person and um, who likes you know underground activities like drugs and so on. Criminals. Criminals, yes. Uh, but you've got to bear in mind that the internet in the 90s um, really was led by criminals. It had naked women, it had how to make a bomb, and it had where to buy drugs. Yes. But of course, people don't think of the internet in those terms anymore. People think of it as a natural part of our life, like, you know, sort of um, first world oxygen, if you like. And so that change will come, I think, in this space, but it will take a little bit, a little bit more time. And I don't really think that the naughty thing should be um, the dominant the, the dominant discussion, which it seems to be with the, with you know, with the old world, the world, because actually it's to to me it's a sort of validation of the network. The criminals say yes, this thing works, it's brilliant. Yeah, so instead, yes. we should be listening to the criminals going, why is it brilliant? Ah, what are the applications for the real world? Um, uh, that would that would be more constructive. But I'm very bullish, and I think that this space will open up new opportunities. It's not just a bunch of code that can't be copied. It's going to have utility and application um, from from open source databasing. Um, to, to, to micropayments, just the sort of things we can't imagine right now. Um, monetizing it, let's just, let's just leave it at monetizing the internet. And I think that's probably quite a big idea for people to, to go home with. But will Bitcoin itself be the, be the blockchain that works as well, or could it be supplanted by some other kind of asset which is constructed in a similar way? Well, that's a very, very good question. I mean, it's, there's a school of thought that would tell you that... Um, that Bitcoin is, is because there's continuous improvement to the network, it will, it will maintain its supremacy forever. And there are other people that believe that it's AOL and Google and Facebook are yet to be invented. So, um, yeah, it's one of those. <laughs> no one exactly knows. But, but there are, to put it in perspective, there are 650 of these different digital assets or cryptocurrencies, I prefer digital assets as a phrase. Um, most of them are worthless and pointless. But there are 10 or 20 that have got a tangible value with networks of $10 million rising to $1 billion, and the Bitcoin network's worth um, something like $14 billion. So, you know, it, it, it's leaps and bounds ahead at the moment. And um, you talked about trend following earlier on gold. If you're going to trend follow, stick with the winner and um, maybe maybe jump to another two or three. But really, you know, Bitcoin is, is uh, not a bad thing to have a small percentage of your... If, if, if gold is 5% of your, 5 or 10% of your assets, you know, thinking about gold, buying gold mining shares. Well, take that money you're going to put to gold mining shares and put some of it into Bitcoin. And, and, and I, I think it's a, about the same risk with, with a much bigger reward. So that was Charlie Morris discussing gold and more broadly his thoughts on asset allocation. To hear other professional views and stay in touch with all our latest podcasts, I'd like to remind you that you can sign up on our website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified about each podcast as it goes live. There's normally about one a week. You can find details of the Atlas Pulse newsletter that Charlie edits at www.atlaspulse.com. Thank you again for listening. (laughs) 